but it, it's not uh, an area that specifically you, you really study intensely um, unless you're doing a series. But um, it, this was very much, uh, these were the stories I kind of grew up on was Elijah and Elisha. I'm not sure why my dad uh, was so fixated on him, but I, I, there's, there's not a story about Elijah or Elisha that, I, that I, I'm not like, oh, I remember when my dad told me that story when I was, you know, five. Um, you know, when you're five years old, most parents are reading, still reading the, you know, the, the happy little children's book. My dad's talking about fire falling from heaven and destroying armies and, and stuff because he's weird. I don't know why. I, I don't know where, I don't know where I get it, but, um, so, uh, we're in the book of 2 Kings, and we're, we're, um, we're going to be in the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, but I want to look at Elisha. I started last week um, talking about Elisha, how Elisha is a man of absolute conviction. Um, Elisha never doubts. He, he, he's always full speed ahead the entire time, moving in one direction, um, and, and it's very difficult for the people around him to deal with him. Um, because he he is he, Elijah Elisha is Elijah was was kind of on the outside of things and he was abrasive but there are whole passages where he's not there Elisha is always in the midst of everything um, and one of the curious things about Elisha um, is that his entire life um, his entire ministry um, is essentially um, He's essentially a traitor to the crown. Uh, now, the crown, we're going to talk about this, but the crown of Israel is, is held by wicked people. So, to, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a direction we're going there. But if you were a person living in Elisha's day who didn't believe in a lot of the stuff about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would think of Elisha as basically just, he's just a troublemaker. He's just, all he ever does is every time the king opens his mouth, he contradicts him. Every time something's going good, Elisha says it's going to end. Every time things are going well, Elijah says, oh, but there's a drought coming. And this guy's just such a naysayer and a troublemaker. Um, but, but the principle that I, I want you to kind of glean, and I'm kind of putting the big idea first, but the principle I want you to kind of glean from this is that uh, it's not that Elisha is a troublemaker, it's that the society around him is broken. So Elisha's righteousness looks weird. It looks troublesome. So I want to I get into this. I want to invite um, a couple of folks in the congregation to pray. We've been doing this um, since the beginning of the year, uh, this idea of the, the congregation praying over our time in the scriptures rather than, than me praying it. And so we want to take a moment and, and two, one or two people want to pray uh, a short prayer over our time in the scriptures and then we'll get right into 2 Kings.
So last week, Elijah, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. We mentioned that this idea of the whirlwind receiving him, and he's kind of come back. He's coming back across um, in Second Kings chapter two. He's coming back across the Jordan River. He's gonna he's gonna retrace Elijah, Elijah's steps all the way back to Samaria. Um, but he comes across the river um, in in second second kings chapter 2 and verse 14 and in verse 15 the first big city that you hit when you cross the jordan river is jericho and and jericho is kind of um jericho is kind of the the beginning of civilized uh israel on that in that that part of the world um having been um coming up the the jordan river valley on a bus with my wife and small daughter um, and going to Jericho, which is a, a Palestinian-held city, in the middle of the night, and having our, our tour guide say, whatever you do, don't look out the windows. Great place, all right? Um, and, uh, and it was fascinating to be terrified for so long. Anyway, because um, we had to sit there, if somebody on our tour needed to get medication, so they had to, that was the only place you could get it without a prescription. That's also the kind of place that Jericho is now, um, where you can get you know, heart medication over the counter. Um, so, but Jericho is kind of the first, civilized, the first city of civilization as you come west from the Jordan River. And there's this group called the Sons of the Prophets. Now, we don't know exactly what the Sons of the Prophets were. They've been around at least since the time of Saul. Um, they're not actually the physical Sons of Prophets. They're, they're, it's some kind of school of prophets. We don't know exactly what they're doing. But chapter 2, verse 15, um, When the Sons of the Prophets who were Jericho saw him, Elisha, opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Now, they're... they're they're looking, they're watching him come across. He takes Elijah's cloak and he strikes the water and the water parts and he's coming across. So, so they see him. And you need to understand the Jordan River is not, the Jordan River is not the Mississippi, okay? Um, the Jordan River is uh, uh, basically, it, well, it's not even the Merrimack. It's, it's smaller than that. It, you, can, you can shout across it without a problem. It's not a big river. Um, and especially at these places, it's pretty easy. They see him. And they say the spirit of, of Elijah rests on Elisha. They came to meet him, bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Uh, please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord or the wind of the Lord, the breath of the Lord, has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. Um, in other words, God may have thrown Elijah away. And, and we want to we wanna go get his body. Now, now I, I have a personal theory about this. I wouldn't take a, uh, I wouldn't take a bullet for this. Um, but I think that they suspect, they think that Elisha may have offed Elijah um, and kind of just left him for the carrion eaters out in the wilderness. And so they're, they're kind of like, hey, let's, why don't we go check? And Elisha at first says no. Um, Elisha says, uh, says, you shall not send. But when they urged him, Till he was ashamed, he said, send. Now this trouble always, this, this passage always troubled me a little bit. Um, why Elisha doesn't want them to send uh, these guys until, until it occurred to me to actually read what's going on. Um, and remember, if you, if you notice, at the beginning of chapter 1 of 2 Kings, there's this statement that the king of Moab, when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against Israel. And that's going to be picked up again in chapter 3. The king of Moab rebelled against Israel. Well, um, 
Jericho is on the western bank of the Jordan River. You want to guess what land is on the eastern bank of the Jordan River here? Moab. And do you know what 50 strong men are? Those are 50 soldiers of Israel. So Elisha says, don't be stupid. Don't send Israelite soldiers into a country that's already in rebellion. You're going to provoke a war. That, I, that's my personal theory of what he says, of what, why he doesn't send them. But they say, go ahead, send him. He goes, okay, fine, send him. See what happens. Um, you know, it's, it's like a parent. It's like, no, don't put that fork in that power outlet. Okay, fine, put the fork in the power outlet. See what happens. And he says, so they says, send them. So they sent their 450 men, and for three, years they, for, for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? He said, what did, what did this accomplish? It didn't accomplish anything. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, now this is, this is this great deflection that they pull. They say, all right, well, they looked, they didn't find him. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. And the land is unfruitful. I have no idea what Elisha does here. Right? This makes no sense. Bring me a new bowl, he says in verse 20. Put salt in it. They brought it to him when he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. I looked all over the place. And if you find a reference to this, I would appreciate it. I looked all over the place for any kind of problem somebody might have with water, with fresh water, that throwing salt into it fixes. All right? Because this doesn't make any sense to me. The only thing I can think of is what they're describing as salt is some other compound that's often mixed with salt. I don't... I, because when you put salt in fresh water, guess what you get? Salt water. And you can't drink salt water. So there must have been something that the salt could kill off. Maybe there was a bacteria or something. I don't, I don't know what's going on. But anybody ever finds a decent explanation for this one, I would love it. Now, my explanation for it is, Elijah's a prophet. He fixes the water. He does it with salt. Don't get it, but okay. All right? That's kind of my official position. Um, but I'm sure there's an explanation for it. Um, and, and the state that, that now on, there's neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it, this, it's, it's a weird passage. Um, it's a weird moment where he does something. And then in verse 23, possibly the most troubling passage that in the entire story of Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, now I know why my dad always told me the stories of Elisha. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. My dad has no hair. And, and he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Don't you love the dismissive way? It's like, yeah, yeah, bears came out of the woods, destroyed them. All right, so this is a very, very troubling passage. So, so let me very briefly um, explain what happens here, because the translation... While, while literal, almost the, the translation of what's going on here misses, I think, the idioms that are going on. So again, not going to take a bullet for this, but this is, this is kind of an explanation of what's happening. Bethel is one of the cult centers of northern Israel. It's where a long century before this, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had set up a golden calf and said, this is where you worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's a false worship center it's a, it's a place where people worship false worship god falsely they worship the right god wrong right 
Um, and this description, the fact that... So, so let me ask you a question. When was the last time you saw a group of more than 40 little boys running around? All right, outside of school, this doesn't happen. And they certainly don't wander around in the wilderness between Bethel and Jericho. Um, so what I think is going on, and there are commentators that agree, what I think is going on is that the description, small boys, the description of children... The description is actually describing kind of roving bands of uh, hoodlums and robbers, all right? And they are coming out of the cult center of Bethel, and they are trying to get him, they're, they're, they're going to mug him, basically. So they see this lone prophet walking along, he's got Elijah's cloak, and he's obviously bald, I don't, I don't know why that's what they latch on to. I mean, the guy's walking around wearing a, 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 a garment that, is you know anyway um so they 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 call they insult him um and it may be it, it may be so so again this is a lot of conjecture so don't i could be very wrong about this but it does kind of make sense it may be that they are taunting elisha because elijah saw god and he covered himself with the with the cloak he covered his face and so they're kind of saying you don't you don't know who god is kind of taunting and they're so, they're doing something to taunt him um, but they, they appear to be ready to, to mug him, to beat him. He's on the way from Jericho, all right? He's a, he's, I don't know if that sounds familiar at all, the story about somebody on their way from Jericho but um, getting beat up, but that, that happened quite a bit in the ancient world. And so he's on his way to, from Jericho. He passes Bethel. This group of hoodlums shows up. Um, they start, you know, hey, daddy-o. They start making fun of him. All right, and uh, see now, now the image has completely changed. You've gone from small children coming now. Now you've gone to roving hoodlums in the Iron Age. Now you're thinking of guys in leather jackets with their hair greased back. You know, they're they're revving their cars, going to race for pink slips. Um, so so th- these guys are these guys come out and they're and they're they're taunting him. And he he summons he turns around and curses them. And two female bears come out of the woods, and the scripture says tear forty two of them. Now. I don't know about you, but how stupid do you have to be to sit around after the first guy goes down? This should say the she-bears came out and tore two of them, and everybody else should have hightailed it. So what exactly is going on? Their language, we, we don't know what's happening, but this is not children, all right? So Because I remember reading this as a story as a kid going, whoa, 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 whoa. God just killed 42 kids. I am going to get A's the rest of my life. This, so, so it seems to me that that's what's going on, um, and that's what's happening. He's, he's being assaulted by this group, this roving band, because remember, they're in kind of this period of anarchy. Ahab has died. Ahaziah is dead. Jehoram, the king Jehoram, is just starting to get control. So they're kind of in a little bit of chaos. He's on a border territory, so there's a lot going on here. Um, so he passes through this. And I, I, want you to, I want you to just kind of look at this and understand that these are basically three tests. Um, Elijah, Elisha is passing through the scrutiny of those around him. All right? And he, he's going he's to hold up. His reputation holds up. His calling, his appointment holds up. Um, I'm certainly glad that ordination boards don't consist of these things, but this is, this is what he goes through. The first thing is they test to make sure that he hasn't, he hasn't done something horrible to Elijah. They, they want to go through Moab and see if they can find the body. They want to test his truth. Is he telling the truth when he says that Elijah was carried away by the whirlwind? They're testing the truth. 
or are they going to find the body? And they go and they look and they can't find him. Then the second thing is they want to test his power and his compassion. Is he willing to, is he willing to, t- to, to take care of this spring of water? He, by the way, Elijah will come back to this school of the sons of the prophets over and over and over again. And every time he does, they've got another problem. These guys are like me trying to fix a house. They are completely incompetent. They, have, they, they can't do anything. At one point, one of them's cutting down a tree, and the head of the axe falls off and goes in the water, and he doesn't know what to do. These, these are men who have literally never worked at J, a job in their lives, have no concept how to go into the water to get an axe head out. I mean, it's just, just strange stuff that these guys do. So, um, so he, he passes the test of the truth. He passes the test of truth. He passes the test of, of compassion. All right? And then he passes this weird test all right, of Bethel, which I think is actually, um, is, is a... Is a I don't really know how to describe it other than it's a test of whether he will keep going. All right? So he, he, he's confronted by the, this, 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 troublema- this band of troublemakers going to mug him. All he does is turn around, curse them, and keep walking. And I want you to notice, um, it, seems like, it seems like Elisha literally does it like this. These guys come down, they start yelling at him, you bald head, you bald head. He turns around, he curses them, and then he just keeps walking. The bears come out and take him out. Now, now, my vivid imagination, which cannot be, is it cannot be this way, is Elisha just walking into the woods, the bears coming out of the woods, tag, all right? Um, like, like they're tagging the bears in and they're taking care of the job. It couldn't have been that way, but it's still funnier that way, as opposed to thinking about 42 people being killed by bears. But, but there's this test of, there's these tests of his truth, there's this test of his compassion, uh, his ability, and there's this test of his resolve. Will he continue? And Elisha holds up under this scrutiny. And if, if there's an application I can draw from this, it is that we need more men who can hold up to scrutiny. We need more men who are confident, and, and we need more women. We need more men, more women, more people who will stand up to the scrutiny of those around us because of the power and the drive of the call of God upon them. Um, it's, it's difficult It's difficult when everybody around you is, is testing you. And what is the difference from your experience, from the way that you experience, what is the difference between a temptation and a test? They feel exactly the same for the person that's going through them. And we need to be able to hold up to the scrutiny of those around us because that's also holding up to the scrutiny of God. Will we cave or will we go? All right, will, we do, will, we, um, will we speak the truth no matter what or are we willing, you know, are we willing to stand up under the scrutiny? And and that's just a kind of a side uh, application. I kind of have three side applications before I get to. I gave you the big idea at the beginning, so if you got somewhere to go, you can go now. Um, anyway, uh, in chapter three and verse one, we then get into a, a, a war. Um, so Elisha has gone back to Samaria. He's in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. Um, by the way, there are, there's no way to figure out exactly what year this all happened, because if you read through it, there are three different synchronizations for when Jehoram becomes king, and they don't fit together. Um, there's lots of theories about how that works, but 
Um, and I'm sure if we lived in this context, we would understand it. But anyway, he reigns for 12 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother. This is Ahab and Jezebel's son. All right, Jehoram is Ahab and Jezebel's probably his second son, their second son. Um, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made, so he gets rid of the, 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 the cult of Baal in Samaria. But nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That's the, the golden calves um, in Dan and Bethel that, that they're worshiping at. So he's not worshiping Baal, but he's still not doing things right. And Mesha, Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Remember, I said, this is Moab. is right across the Jordan River from Jericho. It's the region, basically, from Jericho um, south to the bottom of the Dead Sea on the eastern bank. So the western bank is where Jericho is, the eastern bank. Um, it's called a plateau, plateau of Moab. Um, basically, if you're at the Dead Sea, and I, I should have brought the picture because I actually have it, um, but if you're at the Dead Sea and you're looking east, you just see these, these basically these enormous cliffs, and then it's just flat on the other side. And, and you just you go up and see the Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level, if I remember correctly. The, the plateau is about 7,000 feet below, above sea level, and it's just, and then you're up on this plateau. It's a geologically interesting place. Um, and he, he goes to Moab, um, and they rebel. So verse 6, King Jehoram, Jehoram marched out of Samaria at the time and mustered all Israel, and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me, will you go with me to battle? And Jehoshaphat answers him the same way that he a answered Ahab. He says, I will go with you, my people are your people, um, my, I, will, I am as you are, you pe my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. He has this covenant language, we are one in this particular task, um, and how will we go? And the king, uh, he's, Jehoram's, uh, then he said, Jehoshaphat says to Jehoram in verse 8, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So what he says to Jehoshaphat, he says, okay, you're going to join me in fighting the Moabites. Jehoshaphat says, sure, we're together on this. Where should we go? Well, instead of crossing the Jordan River right here, which would make sense, um, let's instead, let's go south under, below the Dead Sea and we'll catch them from behind. We'll, we'll swing up through from behind. Because remember, there's this, this, the, it's a plateau, so it's hard to get an army up that plateau. So let's go down through Edom. Now, Edom is uh, ruled by a, a king appointed by the king of Judah. Um, it's, it's, it's ruled by Judah. In fact, the guy never gets a name. It's probably Jehoshaphat's son, who's also named Jehoram, to just confuse everybody. Um, but, uh, so, but they go down and they catch the king of Edom and they, they march through Edom. They go down underneath the Dead Sea. And they, the description is, so the king of Israel, verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or the animals that followed them. Now, anybody that's been around the Dead Sea knows that there is no water for you or the animals. You have to bring it with you because the Dead Sea is called dead for a reason. Um, and so they're down in the, the, the salt flats south of, of the Dead Sea, and they've got no water. Now, who's planning this expedition? Um, they, they seem to be thinking, Jehoram seems to be thinking, oh, this will be easy, we'll, we'll just take care of this. And the king of Israel, verse 10, 
the king of Israel, so that's Jehoram, king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. Oh, you know, we... Now, <laughs> God didn't tell him to do this. He told him, he said, hey, let's go. Let's go fight this war. Now he's in trouble. Oh, the Lord has appointed for us to go into the... Well, you're the one that didn't bring water into the wilderness of the Edom guy. You know, this is not God. Elisha's actually going to say that. And then verse 11, uh, Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? This is the same question that Jehoshaphat asked Ahab before the war uh, uh, in Ramoth-Gilead in 1 Kings chapter 22, the one that Ahab died in. But this time Jehoshaphat asks it after they're already on campaign. With Ahab, he asked it first. He said, let's, let's get a prophet. Maybe we should ask somebody before we go and fight a war. Now, for some reason, Jehoshaphat doesn't think to ask the prophet until they're already on the campaign. This is like asking for directions to Chicago after you're already in Pennsylvania. You, you, you have to know where you're going from the beginning. You've got to plan this out. And neither, none of these guys have thought this out. And fortunately for Jehoshaphat, and this, again, my imagination goes nuts with Elisha, but this is how I picture Elisha. He's in Samaria. Jeho- Jehoram says, Moab's rebelling. He says, let's get Jehoshaphat. What do you think, Jehoshaphat? Should we go? Yeah, let's go. Let's go by the way of Edom. And I just picture Elisha walking behind them with his hands in his pockets going, this is going to end badly. And he's, walk- he's with them. He follows them the whole way. They're, they're 100 miles away from Samaria, so it's not like he's accidentally there. He's traveling with them. And he says, uh, are there any prophets? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Oh, now you come and talk to me. Go to the prophets of your father, and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now remember, he follows the cult of Jeroboam. Jeroboam believes that the Lord, Yahweh, he can be worshipped at the golden calves of Bethel and Don. So he's not lying. His God is called Yahweh. The problem is he's worshipping God wrong. He's, he's seeking after the... He's not doing it the way it's supposed to be done. So he, he, he's, he's using the name of God. Uh, he's... Uh, oh, let's, let's take a turn of phrase. He's taking the name of the Lord his God in vain. Empty. There's no substance to his worship of God. Because he's worshiping the golden calf. This is the king said, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. And then he does one of the things that every prophet should do. Now bring me a musician. If you're a musician and a guy who can call fire from heaven and split oceans calls for you, you're sitting there going, oh, I, I'm no good. Get somebody else. I think the musicians, who's the first person to be sacrificed if the worship service is bad? The musicians. We're, 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 we've got next week. We're not here, right? 
So he brings a musician. He asks for somebody to play. The musician plays. The hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord. I'm not going to get the whole details, but basically there's, a, a, there's some kind of uh, uh, rainfall or something in the mountains. We don't know what it is. Somehow God sends a huge rush of water. It fills up all the pools um, around the people of Israel and, and Judah and, and Edom, and so they're able to drink water. And then the Moabites come up on them early in the day, and the sun is red, and it's shining down on the pools, and they think it's blood, all right? Obviously not terribly bright. Um, and so they march in thinking that they're going to take over the, they're going to just be able to find all the bodies of the Israelite army. They march into camp without their swords ready. The Israelites, the Edomites, and the, and the Judites go, well, and they slaughter them. There's a huge battle that takes place, all right? Because the Moabites just go in without being ready. I'm not going to get into all the details. You, you got the summary. You can read it um, along the way. What are we, so what are we going to draw out of this? And that, that's the question, because you read a passage like this, and you go, um, what, do we, what do we draw out of this? You know, it, it doesn't seem to have a whole application. So I mentioned that first application, that we need more men and women who are willing to stand up under scrutiny, who will stand up under scrutiny. Um, and these applications are a little bit disjointed. You can kind of mend them together along your way. But the second thing I, I, I want you to see about Jehoram, and even Jehoshaphat to a certain extent, but mostly Jehoram, um, is that uh, most, most evil men have good intentions and good vocabulary. See, Jehoram, he knows, to, he knows who Elisha serves, so he naturally evokes the, the, he, he evokes, uh, the, the name of Yahweh. And, and he's, he's bringing Moab back under authority, and Moab has been under Israelite control since David. David brought Moab under control in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So, so, I mean, isn't he doing the Lord's work? You know, Elijah, I'm doing the Lord's work, and here I am with Jehoshaphat, the, the, the descendant of the king of, uh, the son of David, you know? I mean, he's, he's a descendant of the house of David. And, and I mean, so, so I, I'm on your side. Evil men will often sa- seem like they have good intentions, and they will have the good vocabulary but ultimately we are judged by our actions. We're judged by our actions because Jehoram, for all the good that he's doing, he's still not worshiping God. He's worshiping a false god with Yahweh's name on it. And even though he might be better than Ahab, right? I mean, that, that, that's not saying much. I mean, that's a really low standard. Evil men can have good intentions and good vocabulary. And it takes a man or a woman with enough conviction, I should say evil men and women, let's be sure, all right? Even, and it takes a man and a woman with enough conviction to endure the scrutiny of the world, to know their calling, to know their purpose, to know the word of God, to stand up against evil men and women. And to wrap those two together, we have to understand the situation with Elisha that I started with, which is this. Righteousness appears subversive in a world where evil is the standard. Righteousness appears subversive in a world where, righteous, where, where evil is the standard. And people say, well, Jehoram, he's not that bad. He's better than Ahab, but evil is still his standard. Idolatry is still the way that he walks. And Elisha still stands against him. 
He says, it's not for you. Elisha's entire ministry will be would be considered treasonous by a, by a contemporary commentator. At one point, he not only consorts with the enemy, he heals the commander of the armies of the kingdom of Aram, but he also anoints the guy who's going to kill Jehoram and tells him, go kill Jehoram. He is a subversive traitor from the world's point of view, but a righteous man of God from God's point of view. The perception that we have of people, we have to make sure that when we're looking at the world, we're looking at through it the lens of the calling of God and the Word of God, not through the relative lens of this world, because if evil is the standard, righteousness will always be subversive. It will always look like it's in opposition. Now, I want you to understand that, that righteousness being subversive does not mean righteousness has to be hostile. In Elisha's case, he's very matter-of-fact, but I don't think Elisha is like screaming this. I don't think Elisha says, you go pray to the gods of your father and mother. I think Elisha looks at him and goes, now I see everybody with sarcasm, but he goes, we're the prophets of your, the gods of your father and mother. Why, why are you coming to me? I, I wasn't good enough to ask before you left. Why am I suddenly good enough now? And, and being willing to say, you know, not, this is going to come bad. This is going to come back at me. No matter, I, being willing to gently say, I told you so, is a mark of righteousness. Right? I mean, when somebody, when somebody comes to me and starts telling me about the marriage that they want to make and, and, and everything about their relationship is screaming, ah, ah, toxic, bad, no, don't, ah. All right? It's like, well, you know what I mean? He, he hasn't slept with somebody else in like months, right? I mean, so it's time for us to get married, right? You know, and, 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 and I, I wish I was making stuff like that up, but people have said things like that to me. You know, it's like I, I, I had somebody come to me, he, and, and uh, you know, this is years and years and years ago, um, who, who basically said, basically said to me, well, you know, I mean, I know I've had children with three other women, but this one I love. Right? And I kind of went, oh, this is going to end badly. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a pattern. I mean, I hate to say that, but there, there's patterns that happen and there's toxic things about relationships. And then when, when things fall apart, people come back to you and go, why didn't you tell me? It's like I did. I did tell you this was a bad idea. Uh, you know, I, when, when somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, I just make exceptions to my rules about, you know, being alone with, um, you know, being alone with women that aren't my wife. I only make, I, there are only a couple of exceptions that I make from time to time. Exceptions become the standard, and the standard, when it's determined by situation, by, 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 by what I feel like at the moment, it almost always leads to disaster. So Elisha, being a man who is an absolute resolve and righteous he becomes subversive. Not because he's changed or God has changed, but the world around him has changed. The world around him has become set to a standard that has nothing whatsoever to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you know what? Being a Christian sometimes, it means being a non-conformist. It means being willing to lovingly say, you're wrong. 
And that's hard for us to do as Christians. Because we live in a world where if you say you're wrong, you're being intolerant, you're being unaccepting, um, you're, you're being a bully. Can I, can I, t- I have to, I'm going to tell you guys something before we get to the Lord's table. I just have to tell you this because it's awesome. I got banned from Facebook for bullying last week. I did. I got a 24-hour ban for bullying and hate speech because I had a fellow Christian, not anybody in the church or anything like that, who basically told me if I didn't use a particular version of the Bible, I was going to hell and I was not a Christian. And I responded with, well, that's very self-righteously arrogant of you. He reported me to Facebook and Facebook banned me. All right, yes, legit, legit. The best part was it was my second offense and I never even heard about the first offense. Like, 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 I got this notice, like, it's your second offense, you did something on November 26th. I went back over, I'm like, November 26th, I'm posting pictures of my dog. Who reported my dog as hate speech? <laughs> Tom, it was you! <laughs> the reality is, the reality is when you call it as it is, in a world where everybody wants to be told that the standard that they have set based on evil is acceptable, when you call it as it is, you will be subversive. You can be compassionate. You can be loving. You can be direct. You can be truthful. I, I don't be angry because people don't agree with you. All right? Anger, a, being angry because a, a sinful world is full of sin is never going to accomplish anything. But righteousness is going to be subversive. It's going to be nonconformist. It's going to create difficulty. But we have to, we, we hopefully believe in the one who has saved us, redeemed us, empowered us, gifted us, spoken to us. We trust him enough that we're willing to stand with him even if we stand alone. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, not just for thoughts and ideas and explanations that come up during a sermon, but, but your word revealing to us your work, your righteous love, your righteous judgment, your righteous truth. Lord, help us to live in a manner worthy of both your truth and your love. To speak truth in love. To stand with your word even when we stand against those who we love. Lord, give us compassion. Give us strength of conviction. Give us hope in the darkness. Lord, help us to pass the tests. Help us to stand when asked with you. Whatever may come, Lord, may it be said of us that we identified the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and His Son, Jesus, who we pray and who we remember now in our Lord's table. And the Holy Spirit who speaks and binds us together. We pray this.